You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kibalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is some of my best friends are Kabbalists, and I'm here with Rav Nossin Notagwik from Ashkelon in Eretz Yisrael. Um, Nossin did me the covered of listening to a something that was up on our platform site, which was an investigation into Yukum Porkin's history. And there's a very interesting note to that is the statement that is found in the Sefer Achsidim from the Hasidic Ashkenaz. And I'll read it to you again. And this is what piqued uh, uh, Nelson's interest. And uh, he's done a deep dive into it. But let's start here first with the Sefer Achsidim. The Sefer Achsidim starts with a question, uh, with a given. And this is in tough, tough Shin Ayan in the standard edition. And it actually does not appear in the Makitse Nerdomim edition, which is interesting. Uh, Erev Shabbos. Erev Shabbos here doesn't mean on Friday afternoon, but it actually means on Friday night. That's why we need to do the main Sheba. Right. And we say, you know, Ufro Soveinu, right? Ufro Soveinu Sukashwemecha. Right, that is a that that is an addition that's interestingly not found in the weekday prayers. Right, we right I mean, hashkivenu is anyway an interesting bracha uh, to to take apart, but it seems like counterintuitively, Shabbos, which should be the safest place, is not. And that's part of what the Sefer Chassidim is dealing with, like the given. Well, uh, why is it that this, this isn't safe? And he says, <laughs> Because these souls, or at least an aspect of the soul, is not in their usual place in hell. Why? He says, Pirish. And then it just seems to be an explanation of that earlier idea. In other words, the idea that we usually have from Dante and other images is that this, the souls are in hell and there's this devil with a pitchfork that is poking them or they're in the salt mines and their, their bodies are falling apart and whatever you would call their bodies and they're just suffering. No, these ruchos of these rishoyim, in their death, they become agents of destruction, agents of, of malice and destruction in our world. Kemokol told this Kayan, Shemesu. And this is what has occurred, the Sefer Chassidim says, to all those people that were uh, destroyed by the deluge of the flood. The ones that were Kayan's families, the Kayan children of that previous age, Nasu Nishmoseyem Mazikim, their souls didn't just disintegrate, but they became agents of of damage. Who do they have rights against? People are Mechalo Shabbos. Or even if people aren't Mechalo Shabbos, but they're merely sad and not happy on Shabbos. Just imagine, like all all the people, all the people that just are having a really miserable time because they can't text their their buddies and their you know and their BFFs, right? I can think of a version of even that applies to an older vintage of human 
<laughs> of why they might be sad on Shabbos about things they're not getting. Weiter, oh, hafilu bo. Speaking of which, people who aren't being misadein on Shabbos, people who aren't really getting the pleasure that Shabbos should give them, so they are now targets to the souls of these Rishoyim who are in Gehenna, not getting a day off, but are actually seemingly morphed into agents of punishment. He says, Lakach, Tachluche, Ruches, that's what happens. That's why you'd sort of become ill in this spiritual way on Shabbos. That's why in Tehillim, that capital is next. These two capitals are next to each other. What we call is right by Mizmer Shiliyam Shabbos. And that's why we get to the final point here. Why are we praying for the health of people specifically on Shabbos? Yomtov, we don't say Yukum Purkun, because on Shabbos they are, no matter who they are, they're subject to that illness that can be unleashed by the supernatural forces. And he says, When you get zapped by these Gehenim souls that have turned into these arrows of punishment, you're not going to necessarily be cured by that, like Rafu Espneyotam, because you, you're going to need God to cure them. In other words, when he wounds you, he's the only one that can provide any sort of salve, balm, or healing. So that's the piece from Sefer Achsidim that I mentioned uh, earlier, a couple of weeks ago, and that piqued your interest. So um, there are some, uh, Ruven Margolis already did some uh, fundamental work on discovering the uh, antecedents or similar ideas found in Kabbalistic literature, but I know that uh, Nelson, you armed with your shovel and Zohar, what did you discover? Well, first I'll just say a few observations about the the chapter that you, or the passage that you read. To begin with, I think that the key idea of the, you know, Friday or Friday evening being a time of mazikin really is the source for Birchas Me'en Sheva. And, and maybe people don't know this, maybe it's worthwhile saying. The reason why you have that extra miniature Hazar Sashats uh, by Friday night davening, and you don't have it any other time, you don't have it, you don't have it on Yantu, is because the synagogues were out of town. They were outside the city walls or the city limits, and it was considered dangerous to walk back from shul at night alone. Okay, so therefore you had this extra chunk of davening put onto the end of Mariv, so that even the latecomers, okay, would not be left alone in shul and they would have somebody to walk home with. That's the you know that's the that's the shot angle of it. But it certainly indicates that uh, that on Shabbos, you know, you have mazikin who who are able to do something, and the one time a year that you don't have that issue is on Pesach, because Pesach is a Laila Hashomer min Hamazikin. So, so even if Pesach um, falls out on Shabbos, you do not say Me'en Sheva; you just say Vayichulu. Because Vayichulu doesn't have anything specifically to do with Mazikin. It has to do with uh, it has to do with remembering Kedusha Shabbat. 
And interestingly enough, you know, you also say by Shabbos that falls out on Pesach, you also say, um, you also say, uh, so that would at least indicate um, that does not have anything to do with protecting us from Mazikin, but, you know, that's uh, that's just uh, something that I'd, you know, point out. Maybe it's significant, maybe it's not. Anyway, the the thing that really touched me, this, this, this brought back memories um, of learning with my father, which is something that, my you know, my father tried to interest me in learning with him. And, you know, by the way, it's my father's yard site, uh, right, the day after Shabbos. And um, he used to like to try and, and teach me out of a book called Kav Hayashar, or Kav Hayashar, which um, is a kind of a Kabbalistical Musr book, which was really very popular in, in a lot of places. And um, I, don't, I don't remember the author. I haven't, didn't bother to, to look that up. But he was always, this particular book was quoting all sorts of uh, stories from the Ari and from Mukubalim. And, and my father liked that because it was like, you know, very mysterious. And he was, he was turned on to that kind of thing. Um, I, at the time, was turned on quite a bit less, you know, being a, I considered myself a little scientist, you know, so I wasn't all that, I, I wasn't all that excited. But the one thing that I recall is this description of the Ari Kadosh going out with his Talmudim to the, to the open fields. And the Ari is pointing out that all of the trees, all every leaf on a tree has a little has a little neshama sitting on it. All the rocks are covered with neshamot. All the all the blades of grass are have neshamot stuck all over them. And that um, is something that, as I you know began to think about it more deeply, I came to something of a realization about how this is actually philosophically, you know, in some ways uh, quite a reasonable thing to to perceive. Because there's a there's a question about the nature of consciousness and 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 there's basically two answers you know either well there's several answers what consciousness one is one is to say that consciousness is kind of like a an illusion that emerges out of uh, the activities of the brain uh, which is I don't believe tenable and I certainly don't like it <laughs> don't like that idea um, or that consciousness is something inherent that comes from someplace and, and goes back there. So, so that would kind of like indicate that consciousness is the equivalent of the of a soul. Um, and then you have a theory that says that basically consciousness is an aspect of things in themselves. It's as if everything in the in the universe, you know, has some aspect to it which is consciousness in a very in a very um, kind of watered down or fragmented form. And what happens when a human being becomes conscious is that consciousness then becomes manifest in the person. And therefore, the consciousness that is in the person is actually a reflection of the consciousness that is already embedded in the world. It's, I think it's a great theory, and actually I believe it's true. And also, um, you know, Baal Shem Tov said as much, and, and uh, Talmudia Shem said as much in, in, in many different ways. And part of the idea of the, the fallen sparks, you know, Shvira Sakelin, um, has to do with that. It has to do with, with encountering some kind of consciousness in a very low level of functioning but it's but it's kind of in the things themselves and um there's a lot of so there's a lot of different tires about about that that you know what we encounter in the world is as you know what we see there and what touches us and what makes us feel like we're connected to it 
is actually a kind of proto consciousness. And then, you know, when somebody wakes up one morning and says, hi, I'm here, then you're actually pulling all of that into yourself. So the most logical place for that to go, if a person dies, is back out, is back out into the world. And, and suddenly I, I kind of see that, yeah, that's, that's really what is being taught here. So the only, the only thing that I would add, though, is that, you know, in order for all of these sparks of consciousness to, to become part of your personal conscious, consciousness, you need a siwa milamala. So I think anybody would agree that there's a, a certain aspect of the neshama that we get, which is there to, you know, be the counterbalance or the counterweight to the tendency of the sparks to be embedded in reality. So if you have this, you know, let's let's call it a certain kind of vessel, right? So then you can draw up the sparks and receive them into yourself. So you need that ray of light that comes down min hashamayim in order to in order to effectively become conscious of the world around you and to and to and to function as a human being. Just to go back to the you know to the theme of Shabbos, right? Let's let us let us say that somebody has not been very careful with their with their neshama. And let's say that um that they've damaged the neshama in some way. And therefore go, let us say that, you know, the beam of light that came down Manashamayim goes back to where to where it came from. But then so the all the consciousness that the person accumulated over the course of living goes back out into reality. That is Gehenim. I mean Chazal certainly had this idea of Gehenim being being a fiery place underground and therefore if you know you could imagine these nitsotot or this you know person's nishama sinking down into the ground into the fiery depths over there to you know to cook and burn but the real the real fire of the of the that burns up the the nishama is the fire of lust and passion and desire which was never you know which was never uh, thwarted you know, and and Kavarna Rebbe says as much. Although I'm not going to try to track down the reference, but he, he definitely says that the fire of lust and and desire and anger and rage and all those things, those all those negative emotions, are the fires of Gehenna. So if you're saying that a shema goes down, it's not necessarily that a shema is like sinking down into the fires beneath the ground. Okay, although maybe so. But it's actually more of a way, kind of like speaking on, on the level of being that these that this neshama now has. It's no longer on the same level of existence that it had when it was when it was coherent and when it was contained in the body and when it was uh, when it was unified with itself. It's lost that and it's out there. And as something that is out there, it's it's fragmented, and you can. I think easily understand why such a thing would actually be a, ma- a mazik, because this is, you know, this is a, a, a state of mind that's, that's coming from a place of fragmentation and disorientation. And if you if you encounter it, all right. And once again, you know, you don't encounter it because you necessarily walk through, the, you know, walk through walk down the street and suddenly it bumps into you. That would be that, that would be pretty silly. But you can encounter it if you put yourself beyond those, you know, those forms of meaning that give that you know that give your life its purpose so like you're not you're not keeping shops so that would be a wonderful reason why you should encounter a nishama that doesn't keep shabbos or didn't keep shabbos and, and therefore is is able to 
add a certain layer of incoherence and fragmentation to you, to your to one's own body. Okay, so therefore, the diseases that come from these encounters be, would be um, even curable, as opposed to like say regular diseases, which which could be. And there's another there's another aspect here which I definitely encountered somewhere, probably in Kamar Rebbe also, although I once again could not find the source, but it makes actually perfect sense. And that is that the whole idea of the Nishamot being in Gehenna for six days a week while we work is because the process of work is another aspect of Gehenna. Is if Gehenna is is a soul fragmented, then you know when you start to do malacha, when you start to transform the world around you and make it useful, okay, the neshamot are in that, okay, and therefore the fires that the fires of malacha, fire is the is the essential foundation of all malacha. It's the, I think it's the first malacha that human beings ever created. You know, Adam Rishon driven out of Ganed, and the first thing that he did was light a fire. Uh, the rest is history. So, therefore, the labors that we do during the week, the malachot that we do, are part of the Gehenna. It's a, it's, it's a Gehenna that, you know, it's a fire that joins the fragments together as opposed, to, as opposed to breaking them down. But both kinds of fire are there. And, you know, one would say, Ashrei, you know, Hachotet, that actually has a schus to go through, you know, to go through Gehenna. Kind of reminds me, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of it, B'Shem de Gura, that, Gehenna is a Shem Rishabas laundry. So, so he was thinking in terms of getting the crud out. You know, um, I could I could say alternatively that Shabbos is a is a Shem Rishabas repair shop. You know, where broken down fragments of things get welded together. And when that process is not ongoing, then the Shemot are no longer you know are no longer involved in that. And one could under certain circumstances, encounter them and, and uh, like I said, get an added layer of incoherence and meaninglessness to, to life, which would, in fact, be very damaging both to body and to soul. You know, so this is really a, um, an example, I think, Nelson, of how you take, you know, this sort of like, you know, sort of like Grimm's fairy tale medieval source and uh, you know finesse it into something that can be absorbed and understood and not dismissed uh and 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 I agree with you that uh I I think it's a a nice approach but I, I, before I let you go on this way I said that that there are zoharic antecedents or, or similarities uh, were you able to find in the zohar itself other sorts of statements that that back this type of idea up. Yes, but I would I would just like to uh, point out something that you also pointed out, you know, off pod that there's um, there are well known sources in the Zoyer that make the make the claim that Mazikin are actually uh, nishamot of dead people. And that's that is that's quite a chidush because incidentally, it, you know, if you think about the shitas of what Azikin are, so you have you know the original Chazal version of of what a of what a mazik is, and then a mazik is simply some kind of creature that never got to exist. 
a long campaign Ashmashis of Sheshitimei uh, Bereshit and these Nebuch, these critters, whatever they might be, or maybe alternative forms of human beings, you know, the Nishamot were there, but the bodies, the bodies were not. And and therefore they remain as kind of like unfinished business in the fabric of reality. That's you know, that's kind of like the way that I the way that I take that. And I have I have a kind of a yeah, I have a nice little theory I think that goes along with that. Then on the other hand, you know, you have you have the more typically Zoharic concept of the demonic, which which comes from the comes from the Sitra Achra. So the Sitra Achra is the opposite of Hashem's revelation in the world. If you have Hashem's revelation pouring into the world through Tyre and through Eretz Yisrael and through Am Yisrael, the very fact that it's here in a world that is by nature bifurcated and and uh, and fragmented is that whatever you know whatever kedusha comes in kind of generates an automatic reflection of itself and the reflection of itself is is extremely problematic because you know everything everything that yiddishkeit can do the reflection of itself the reflection of yiddishkeit can also do up to a certain point and uh, and that's where you get i think i think the primary thing that uh, that the mukubalim were trying to explain in this way is both the phenomenon of avaydazara. Why is why why is avaydazara seem to be so effective? Why do people actually have mystical experiences with avaydazara? They, you know, avaydazara mythologies are not stupidity. You know, they're they're they are very deep, as anybody who's ever studied mythology can can tell you. So you know, it's not like just a bunch of stupid people who don't know anything about anything. You know, and therefore they're tempted to believe that the uh, you know. The red planet is is the is the source of war or something like that, and, and it's not it's not like that. There's a lot, lot more intelligence in the in the mythologies than one would imagine, and that even becomes more problematic when you get to the age of Christianity and Islam, which are kind of like twins to us, and definitely reflections of us. But they but they seem to do us a lot of damage and a lot of harm and a lot of pain, and you know and how does how does that work? So that is. You know the the primary things that the concept of the sitra achra and the demonic explain, according to this, is really more sociological factors than you know just random catastrophic, you know, catastrophic events or painful events that that people encounter. You know, so you have the chazalic demons, you know, that that are like unrealized potentials for other forms of life, and then you and then you have the sitra achra demons that are reflections of our own. Inability to contain the light of Torah and Yiddishkeit within our within our own selves, and kind of leaks out to the other side. And then you have this theory of Mazikin, which is a whole, which is like a whole different, whole different angle. Mazikin are Nishamot that have that have passed on, and in this respect, it's a very big chidush. You know, it's like falls outside the two main theories of of what Mazikin are. And if you don't mind, I'll just I'll just add one other thing, which I think methodologically is is important. It's for me anyway, because this has became like my go-to method for dealing with a lot of things that don't make any sense or that don't seem to make any sense in Chazal based according based on our own our own um, uh, perceptions of the world. And basically, I would start by asking myself, okay, so you know, assuming assuming that Chazal are not foolish. And they're not misguided, and they're not, and they're not, um, you know, chas v'sholom pesi ma'amin davar. 
that they're actually experiencing these things. You know, they, they, they go out of town and they, they experience these demons. They feel them. They're, they're real. So they have this kind of experience. This is a visionary experience, a psychological experience, however you want to quantify it. It's certainly, I mean, you know, and, and maybe they're even seeing demons through their eyeballs, but that would simply be a, you know, that would be a kind of a, a not a hallucination, but, but an imaginary um, corollary to, to a basic experience of feeling. So then, you know, I can afford to ask myself, so, okay, so if, if I don't really believe in demons, but necessarily I need to, I think, accept the reality of the experience that they had, you know, so what would it be like for me if I had that same experience today? And some of the experience is actually real. And I had it today, would it be just insanity and stupidity, or would it be would it be something more meaningful? And generally, I've come to I've come to find that that there is a more meaningful thing that you can that you can make out of this stuff. And so I'm not saying necessarily that Chazal were always speaking in grandiose metaphors for more rationalistic things. I'm saying that they were experiencing what they were experiencing as 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 visionaries or as deeply sensitive people um, encountering the world. But there's still a meaning for us to get out of that, because if we don't have that kind of experience directly, we perhaps have a corollary to that experience, which would be no less powerful. So that's basically the way that I approach these things. Okay, that's a very long-winded introduction to, um, and I'm not dismissing it. I'm saying, yes, I think I understand the glasses that you put on or the way you've calibrated uh, your microscope. I think I get that. But do you confirm that the Zohar does seem to uh, embrace what we started off with, uh, this idea of what Neshamos in Gehenna are and what's really going on and that there are aspects of Neshamos equal mazikim? The Zohar does seem to corroborate this idea, correct? Yes, but in, in, a, few, in a few limited places. I don't think that it's the standard sheet of the Zohar. It's a sheet in the Zohar. Um, I think the, the Zohar is mostly, to the extent that it talks about the demonic, it's on the Sitra Achra side of the equation, let's say. Chazal, and the Chazal and the Gemara are more on the naturalistic side of the equation, in the sense that you know demons are, are unrealized forms of life. I think as you were alluding before, an Avera that I do that lands me in Gehenna means that the Sitra Achra had power, right? The, the the action that I did that was against God's will, the listening to that other uh, fellow on my shoulder uh, to go into the Red Lobster or to go into the strip club, that was a basic aspect of the power of Sitra Achra in the world. So when I'm paying that price in my Ganem, in a way, I am sort of like in the power of the, of the Sitra. I'm paying the price now. I'm, I'm getting, like you said, the laundry is happening. But, I, but, I, but in a way... I, I did become an agent, and I actually gave to the Sitra Akra a lot more power than perhaps it would have had before me, because I, what was animating me was the spark of God, <coughs> the spark of the Chilak of which I abused in order to do that Avera. So I think the line of demarcation is a little more fluid than your explanation would suggest 
I can I can accept that. There's a lot. There's fluidity everywhere. No, no, right. But I'm saying, in a way, you're you're saying there's the demons of Sitra Achra, then there's the demons here. I would add another point here uh, that. And again, you're right. We would need to do an analysis. We'd really have to find these sources. It, it, it does appear, though, and I think I've sent you some articles about this, that the, the counterintuitive nature of Shabbos being a day that you've got to be more careful, that there's the mazikim are out there. I, I think you do find the spread, not just in, in what I mentioned before in liturgy. I, I think you do, if you do a search, and there have been articles indicating this, that you, you will find uh, an incredible amount of evidence uh, this way. You even get the sense from Chassidish stories about the Balshemtov and others about what was happening, you know, as Shabbos was beginning. In, in many ways, what I really am trying to push you here is that I, I think this approach is is actually more satisfactory, although it might be as you say at Das Yochid, than just to say, well, Gehenim sort of rests on Shabbos. You know, the Gehenim, you know, the Nishamas are going back to Gehenim like they're off. Um, you know, as I said on the podcast before in the earlier podcast, oh, you know, they're out lounging around like drinking beer. Oh, now it's time to go back to hell. I think that this approach is actually uh, more uh, understandable to these statements that oh. Uh, you know, the Gehenna and what we, we're, and, and many of the halachos that are even in Shulchan Aruch, we don't drink by Shalashidis and all these things, I think really force us to construct a more mature understanding of what does this mean that, you know, the fires of Gehenna are somehow not lit or, and the people aren't really suffering on Shabbos and, and the Shabbos never have to go back on Shabbos. I, I think it's, it's almost behooves us to advance our understanding of it. I think that the Mahalach that I said is, you know, once again, whether whether Hasidic Ashkenaz were experiencing what they were experiencing, um, the way that I'm describing it, or whether they were experiencing it in a more straightforward way of, you know, spooky ghosts coming out of their graves or coming out of the gates of hell and attacking you, uh, whichever way you want to take it, you know. But uh, I, I think I think that, that theologically it does it does make a lot of sense. And simply the fact that, you know, the reason why Gehenna rests on Shabbos is because we rest on Shabbos. You know, we're, we're, we're basically, in a, in, a, in a curious way, we're kind of running Gehenna just by the Balacha that Hashem lets us do. But this is important because this is the only way to, you know, to gather together the, the pieces. I do think that the, that there are, let's say, three shitas about Mazikin in, in, in Judaism. There's Chazal, there's this standard Zayhar, which it's all about. You know, it's all about Sam and 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 Lili and and uh, and the whole hispashtus of the of the of the dark side out of the you know out of the uh, light side. You know, out of the sitra the kedusha there's a sitra achra, and you know from from things like that you get the issue about you know maybe not learning a nittelnacht. You know, is a, is an exact uh, result of that kind of thinking, and all of this kind of really weird interactions that Jews have tend to have with churches, you know, like they're walking by and finding a discreet way to spit at it, right? Um, so this has to do with, or, and, you know, and the, and the fact that you could have mystical experiences by being an Oivu de You could even be a good person. I mean, there, you know, there were, there were, once upon a time, there were Nevi'im of Oivu de and they and they said a lot of good Musar to, to the kings of, of the kings of, of Damasek and, and, um, and Ashur, and, you know, it, 
Okay, so it's not as if everybody that was an Ayuvah to Void was necessarily an immoral Oysvar either. Okay, so so you have to, you know, bounce that picture of, of true religion or, you know, what does it mean to be a true religion in the face of all these other religions, which maybe they're not true, but they certainly seem to be effective on some level. And that's a, so that's a whole, that's a different sugya. Here, here the issue is me versus my passions and desires. Because my passions and desires connect me to the world instinctively. And if I follow them, I open myself up to becoming re-embedded in the world. And that's where, you know, and that's where Gehenna is. And that's where it's not unrelated. It's not completely distinct from, but it certainly is a different angle on the meaning of Sitra Achor or the meaning of, of, um, of what happens. You know, what is the divine punishment for, for Nishamas? And it also answers, answers the big philosophical conundrum. You know, if like, if, it's a, if a Nishama is an immaterial thing, then how can it go anywhere? And as, you know, you know, the Rishonim mask this. Okay? If, you know, if a Nishama is, is a non-material entity, then how can it burn? Okay. And, and how can it go somewhere? How can you, how can you take a Nishama and lock it away in hell so that it can't get out? So, you know, it turns out that there's an ontological reality of, you know, a kind of a fragmented existence. And, you know, since I do a lot of, uh, believe it or not, uh, I guess this shouldn't surprise anybody. I do, I do a lot of, uh, comparative religion. I used to have lots of conversations with the Buddhists, you know, because there was a time, I guess, when, when, when Buddhism was enormously popular with, with, with Jews. I think that's kind of died down. But then I was, I was new to the internet. So I spent a lot of time online schmoozing with, you know, the Reverend Tenzin Sharabli, you know, um, who was real name was like, you know, Jonathan Mark or, <laughs> or something like that. You know, but I spent I spent a lot of time, you know, getting I'm trying to understand what's the appeal of this thing, you know. Part of the appeal of Buddhism is that there's a whole system of that doesn't require a deity to run it. It's just a impersonal force in the universe known as karma. And and if you live a life that is driven by desire, well, you know, you know, nobody leaves with their, de- their desires entirely fulfilled. So those same desires reconstitute the consciousness of the person who died. Instead of letting the consciousness of the person just die and disappear, which is what would really be the best thing for him, because that that's why he could at least stop suffering. You know, the unrealized desire always brings you through the bardo transitional state into a, into a, an additional rebirth. But, you know, reincarnation by them is like just endless, endless suffering of one life after another life, after another life, no, nothing ever leads anywhere. Nothing ever goes anywhere. The best thing to do. I mean, it's all suffering. It's, it's all meaningless suffering. And the best thing that you can do, the meaning that you can find in life is, is in the, is in the effort to turn it off and stop it. Make it stop. Make it stop. You know, and how do you do that? I would assume part of it is sanitizing or refining that life of desire that you're reincarnated into. I can't believe that the Buddhists believe it's an endless loop. I think what you're supposed to do, similar to the great Bill Murray film, Groundhog Day, you're supposed to really, whether you can tap into your memories of those life experiences, change yourself. And uh, it, it would lead to a higher 
illumination where you don't have those desires which are so powerful, but then that shackle you uh, to living this over and over again. But, you know, there's a, there's a reason why a Jew can't be a Buddhist, at least in my opinion. Okay? And that is that the Torah always wants us to desire something. It doesn't want us to get to a place where we have no desires. If, as far as they're concerned, if I show, if I have any love for my family, if I love my children, I'm coming back. Okay, I'm still, I'm still part of the endless cycle. Maybe it's because they don't believe in a personal God. In other words, we we are able to to earmark, like the Raiva tells us in his Sefer Kedusha in the Baliyah Nefesh, the Shara Kedusha in Baliyah Nefesh, we're able to earmark that that strongest of desires and lusts as something that we have in common with God, and that the urge to procreate is really the urge of, of the demiurge to create the world of God, to create the world. And um, I mean, I'm going to, I guess if we, if we get this far, I'll be able to come back to the, to the theme of, of, uh, of Priorovia, which turns out to be like super important for avoiding Gehenna. Gehenna. Maybe we'll manage to get there or not. But what I wanted to say basically as far with the reason why I'm bringing in the whole Buddhist thing is, is that, is that if you think about a Nishama fragmenting, you know, so from our point of view, it's one neshama, it's fragmented, you know, you can somehow maybe gather up the pieces and, you know, and make it whole again. But once you go down the road of fragmentation, there's no end to how fragmented you can get. And if you think of each fragment as being a lifetime in of itself, which why or could very well be, you know, so then Gilgul, or, or, or let's say endless reincarnation with no end and with no meaning, okay, that is just another way of describing the same Gehenna of the you know the first kind simply the fires of falling following after your lust and falling into into fragmentation well that's just the same thing it's a different way of experiencing it yeah, well, well i'll tell you what I, I think there's a little bit of a difference here and maybe again i don't know anything about the buddhist theology other than um you know what i've seen in popular media but i i think there's a a benefit of coming to understand this, you call it the, you know, Das Yochid in the Zohar, but I think it also aligns with, I guess, a, a, a look at these multiplicities of universes or existences or planes of existence, sort of in a quantum physics way that they, they aren't, they are existing simultaneously near each other, part of each other as folding into each other. I mean, when we, when we, we take the child's view of Gehenna as this place that, like you say, illogically that a, uh, eternal soul that's unbounded can be shackled into. It, it, isn't it greater to say that there is movement between Gehenna and our world? It, it isn't sort of like this other plane of existence. It's, it's the plane that, that coexists together here. I mean, that's part of what the Rambam is trying to, the Rambam is trying to shake up his readers when he says, Olam Abba is really just a term, uh, it's not Olam Abba. It's now whether we uh, accept what the Rambam is saying or not, I think the Rambam's Yisod is true. Olam Abba is here. Olam Abba is not something that, 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 you know, you, again, because as we've talked about many times, the illusion of time, but here we're talking about the illusion of time, space, and existence. And therefore, you could actually, the idea that these souls 
move into our world or are part of our uh, existence on Shabbos really bespeaks what Shabbos does. Shabbos really shatters this illusion that there's a separation between the various states. When it's not Shabbos, we're thinking, oh, well, there's death, there's Gehenim, uh, right? Shabbos really is because it really put, pulls everything together. So on Shabbos, you could move into our world. These souls, it, it isn't so much, oh, uh, I'm jumping into, I'm, I'm going down into the into the world. On Shabbos, there's a, uh, a loosening of of what I think is anyway illusory type of curtain, and that's the reason why these nishamos are present here. For now, the question is, why is it that they are needling or hurting the people that aren't being uh, Shemer Shabbos? Well, again, the more you know what Shabbos is, the more you have unity with these beings. The same way God does, the same way God understands the purpose of Ra, the purpose of them being here. So the more we, we are tied into what Shmira Shabbos is, whether it's the ultimate level of Oneg Shabbos, a Tainug Shabbos, like the Balatanya describes so incredibly in the Siddurim Dach, what, what the level of, of Aliyah that the, the universe takes on Shabbos, whether you grasp everything of that or not, but keeping Shabbos and being involved in Shabbos is the antidote to not being affected. I completely agree. I think you I think you really said it uh, quite well. You know, the idea that there isn't this like a separate, well, I guess there's, there's, there's a separate paradigm, but the both paradigms are located in the same in the same place. It's once again, it's not it's not like Olam Haba is somewhere over the rainbow, you know, and Gehenna is, is is somewhere under under the under the volcano. Uh, and that that's a slight that's a little literary little literary reference to you know Malcolm Lowry. I can I can also throw off literary reference every once in a while, you know. <laughs> you know so it's not it's not over the rainbow and under the volcano. It's you know it's all it's all here. I've been in Cornavaca, so I guess I have a right to uh, understand Malcolm Lowry's metaphor there of under the volcano. Um, <laughs> till you've gone to Mexico, I guess you don't really get the depths of the netherworld uh, of your own life. But but I think that it's really, in a way, a key to understanding these statements like, well, Gehenna is resting, Shabbos, what's happening? Uh, we, we see we look at things we're we're backwards because the world that these statements were articulated for needed that they needed to hear these things in order to come to a recognition of what Shabbos was because Gehenna featured so much more in their lives immediate the reality of Scharvonish, the reality of of soul suffering all of that was so much part of them when they wanted to be to describe to their audience what is Shabbos about, that's the first thing they, oh, Gehenna's fires are not there. Uh, Gehenna's fires are loosened. The souls are not suffering. That is really a way, I believe, a bridge to understanding what happens on Shabbos, what Shabbos is about. And as I said before, just repeating myself, I think my approach here, I think doing this uh, it isn't 
you know, like I was trying to sort of like in their introduction say that these souls are now going and getting armored up and now they're going to turn, they're going to put on their negative armor and go out there and, 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 and it hurt people. Yes. They're rampaging people. Like Ghostbusters, you know, this is actually something beautiful when we, when we realize how deep these men hug and go, like when we talk about our affinity you know, we say I know I'm again. Uh we we were saying this because we recognize how the distance between Shabbos and the weekdays. Yeah, the sh- the souls are going back to hell. Okay, we need to say we know him for them because the souls are going back to hell. I think the quicker we grow up from that, the more we recognize, yes, the great loss of what Shabbos does, that we are not in Shabbos anymore. But I think the the human desire, you talked about desire, I think if we can desire that state, and maybe is a replacement desire, and we know the type of uh, the type of activities, like I mentioned from the Raivad, that we're supposed to do on Shabbos, right? We're supposed to be misaneg our body. We are supposed to engage in sexual intercourse. We are, right? And 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 yet from a state of peace, reflection, and living beyond limitation. So if we actually cry and desire Shabbos, when Shabbos is over, we have a, a much greater chance, like the Zohar says, to bring the Shef and Bruch of Shabbos into the week. And, and in that way, uh, we actually clean our, our whole act up. Yeah, no, I, I think I think they have a very a very valid chidush. I don't know. I, I heard it. I don't know if you necessarily meant it, but you know, I did. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what I heard. <laughs> I did. <laughs> that it's not just that then you know neshamas get out of heck and they can come and torture people that aren't keeping Shabbos. It's that they get out of hell, and Shabbos envelops them as well, so that they are you know they're together with us. And if that wasn't if that wasn't the case, it really wouldn't be that much of an issue. I mean, like the whole saying of the, of our saying of he noyam because they're going back. You know, it's like it's like we're saying goodbye to them. All the more so, what we're what we're trying to say is that you guys go back to your state of fragmented consciousness. But remember that your shirish is always still here in Shabbos. You know, and 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 take that with you. So know know that Gehenna is a is a is a limited process. It's not an endless process. The integration is coming. It's always and and to some extent, it's always with you. Ashenkin, if we know if we didn't say Vihinoyam, then then we're just going to go to hell, right? So for us, we can embrace these these you know fallen neshamos on Shabbos. For people who aren't keeping Shabbos very well or who don't really like Shabbos very much. Okay, the same neshamas that we can embrace, they don't have the ability to embrace because they don't have the, you know, they don't have the vessel that can contain them. Therefore, it's damaging. So I think that's a very, very fine. I would also add that a, a, another piece of this is the sort of cryptic and interesting statements that were made by Rebbe Lezer Reb Shimon, who said that I'm going to be coming and visiting <laughs> on Shabbos, right? You know, I I will become. Yeah. Well, was was that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi that was saying making kiddush? You know, after his death for his family, it was either a blessed or Shimon or Yehuda Hanasi that would come on Shabbos. In other words, so as great as they were, they are always around. 
around, meaning they're all part of the same existence. But on Shabbos, you'll see me. I'll be here. In other words, I'll be here. And so instead of being like this spooky thing that, oh, this ghost guy, the, the ghost shows up on Shabbos. It's because on Shabbos, we really come to what reality is. And if you do believe that death is not the end of things, and if you believe in an afterlife, then it must have some manifestation. And the manifestation is, you know, Shabbos gives us that taste and gives us that sense. And, and that's why, despite allowing us to rest our weary bones, it confirms to us that the dead, there should be a source, of course, to your dad, the way we started and others, that they are here, that they are definitely here. So, Nate, I think we've uh, we've been able to take this from a curiosity piece and maybe turn it into... The bridge that is needed. So that's it, my friends. We will hopefully join you again soon. Next time when you're saying good job is to all those people in Shul next to you, take a little nod to the people that you aren't seeing. The people that you can't physically <laughs> yes, see. Yes, <laughs> because they are also being misanig uh, with the sense of oneg that, that permeates Shabbos. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.